G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RVC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RVC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return, but incredibly grateful if you pop to Apple Cast, uh, sorry, <laughs> pop to uh, Apple Podcast or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great. Any other reviews, leave to a different sort of podcast, um, but really appreciate uh, a few moments of your time to, to do that. Unfortunately, we missed the British Podcast Awards this year, but uh, uh, maybe, maybe we'll try and, uh, and do that for next year. Anyway, joining Brian and myself in the studio is, uh, is Matthew Peed, one of our senior lecturers here in the, the Small Animal Veterinary Orthopaedic Surgery, um, and uh, he's, he's brought along Jack as well. So if you hear any sort of breathing in the background that, uh, um, that, that it's Jack, it's not, it's not Brian or, or, or myself. Um, anyway, Matthew, thank you very much for, for coming in. Okay, thank you. And, it's good to be here. And we're going to have a chat about elbow dysplasia, though that maybe the terminology, maybe we would like to uh, explore that. Um, but uh, elbows, uh, um, in in general, Matthew, do, do you think, uh, uh, as far as how, how, you know, where, where's our our first sort of point of call about how we um, look into any issues associated with fall in lameness or or particularly like the elbow? Well, I guess the elbow is probably the most common place that's going to be the seat of a persistent forelimb lameness, particularly in purebred dogs. Um, and, and that's because of uh, this, let's call it a syndrome, uh, that we call elbow dysplasia. And elbow dysplasia is a bulk term for a whole bunch of primary things that can go wrong with the elbow normally during development and then the osteoarthritis that comes along uh, behind them. Uh, so um, elbow disease um, is a problem, and the biggest part of the problem that we're all going to be dealing with for most of the dog's life is that uh, all of their individual problems tend to add up to a problem with an osteoarthritis. The elbow's a very high motion joint, and so if you have an osteoarthritic joint that's normally very high motion, then you lose range of motion. And if you lose range of motion at the elbow, effectively, it's almost like the dog has a shortened leg. So they can't extend the leg so far, and therefore, whether they're painful or not, they will look lame, or they'll certainly look like they've got a gait problem. Is that quite obvious to to see like lameness in dogs when they're when they're walking? Do you think particularly with the elbow, or is it can can it be? Um... Yeah, so the the elbow lameness or lameness that relates to the elbow gives us a forelimb lameness, and so it's one of the most straightforward lamenesses to see as we do the observation, which is the first bit of our clinical examination. So normally we can see that because you you know you get a classic nod of the head. So sinks on the sound side, the dog will nod its head down on the side that it's taking the most weight on. So you look to the other leg, that's going to be the lame leg. And then you'll often see some other telltales. They tend to flick the carpus through very fast on the good side because they're trying to get the good leg back down on the ground as quickly as possible. Um, and just on the very start of your physical examination, if these dogs are persistently lame, they'll have lost some muscle over the shoulder. So there are some nice, simple bits of the clinical examination which help point towards this problem. 
And even a, a step back beyond that, do you see certain elbow conditions more commonly in certain breeds, or whether um, yeah, whether certain breeds have short, you know, with shorter legs or anything, are more predisposed to certain types of elbow issues? Yeah. So our very small breeds, particularly perhaps the ones that are going towards a chondrodystrophic skeleton, so some of the French Bulldogs and uh, the Basset Hounds and things like that, they have a development in their elbow which could be described as elbow dysplasia. Um, and that's really um, quite, uh, certainly when you look at a radiograph, quite a bad fit of, of the bones together. So some of those dogs are even going towards um, a sort of developmental subluxation, if you like. Fortunately, the vast majority of those dogs don't have a really painful elbow, so that's not such a big problem. Um, and they manage quite well on those uh, abnormal elbows for most of their lives. I guess the biggest problem, the biggest and most obvious problem that we have with elbow disease developmentally is um, fragmentation of the developing cartilage surface and its associated underlying bone. The most common place that that happens in the elbow is a particular spot on the ulna, um, which is called the medial coronoid process. Um, and fragmentation or maldevelopment of the coronoid process is very, very common in Labradors and Retrievers and Rottweilers and a lot of those um, medium to large dogs, pretty much any purebred dog over 25 kilos. And then all of those dogs get a degree of osteoarthritis as a sequel to that. And when you have a look, Matthew, as you, as you said, sorry, jumping forwards and, and backwards, but when you have a, a look at a patient, you said about looking at the, the way they actually they actually walk and a lack of muscle mass. So when you manipulate uh, the the joints, can you explain what you're what you're looking for? So in that part of the the, the physical exam, the range of motion. And I know that we we have Jack here, and we'll we'll try and put out a, a complementary uh, how to assess dogs with uh, with elbow um, issues, but. Could you, could you maybe describe how you would do that, please? So I guess with any dog with forelimb lameness, if we've identified a forelimb lameness, we want to do a good examination. So um, we're going to go through its uh, uh, digits, the joints of the toes. We're going to go through the carpus um, and look at the carpus range of movement and any swelling. Um, but for most of the dogs we examine, especially early on in life, that's going to be relatively normal. So I guess what we're doing once we've eliminated that and we've tried to manipulate the shoulder as well and you need to do that and try and isolate the elbow so you don't want to be affecting the elbow or affecting the elbow as little as possible when you examine the shoulder. Once we, we've gone through that and we get back to the elbow and I think the real concern is to work out how much pain the dog is dealing with and how much mechanical difficulty the dog is dealing with. So um, we want to do an initial manipulation just to start the range of movement and then to get to a full range of movement 
you're more likely to see pain at a full at the full range of movement so at the extremes of range of movement and dogs are quite nice because they help us a bit with this so full flexion for a dog you should get the carpus all the way up to touch the point of the shoulder and full extension you should get the leg all the way out so the elbow is at about at 160 or 170 degrees so the 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 limb is very close to being straight at that point um, and so we want a close observation because we're trying to describe dis describe the dog's lameness in terms of both pain and let's say mechanical incompetence um, and to decide between those two because it helps us decide how much or how little we have to do for the dog um, obviously a dog that's got pain um, we want to do something for that dog and that pain needs to be actively addressed we may simply not be able to get over a mechanical competence problem but as long as the dog is not too painful we may not we may not have to it may be more of a discussion about um, how we cope with the fact that we've got a lame dog. And is it often, as you said, there's a whole range of problems associated with the elbow, call them dis you know, under elbow dysplasia. Is it often that you're going to have a bilateral problem? Yeah, so we're probably, if we've got elbow dysplasia, if it's a developmental condition, it's probably always going to be bilateral to a degree. And certainly if you detect a problem on one side, you want to evaluate the other side too. I think that's really important because you need to be able to address the client's expectations um, and to make a diagnosis on one side um, and then have the client unaware that the problem could switch to the other side, have the client unaware that they may be dealing with a larger problem than just the one side that they're seeing at the moment. Clients are often confused by this, not the least because they see the dog over a period of time and they may well think that the dog has been lame on its right leg and then on its left leg and then on its right leg again and that's quite common and they're probably right. It, it may well be that that's absolutely the case. Um, uh, so although as a veterinary surgeon you might think that's a confusing piece of history actually it may be a very very real piece of history so being able to get the client started with an understanding of what their pet's problem is is a big deal and then as part of that workup Matthew do you, do you always think about uh, taking radiographs and and if you do what views do you have and then maybe we should come on to where do you think the benefits are of, of further advanced diagnostic imaging such as CT? So I think what we can say with is in general a radiograph is likely to give us more suspicion about the diagnosis but may well not confirm it. It's extremely difficult to accurately see a coronoid process on normal sets of radiographs. You really just can't do it. And you certainly can't evaluate a coronoid process for um, the possibility of further treatment, particularly surgical treatment, uh, with conventional radiographs. Basically, what we tend to be doing with radiographs is we're radiographing elbow. Uh, we might 
find out that the elbow was osteoarthritic to a degree, so we'll see the periarticular osteophytes, and then we infer, if it's a young dog, that the dog has some form of primary elbow dysplasia lesion somewhere that's created or caused this um, osteoarthritis in a young patient. So that's where radiographs tend to be. So there's nothing wrong with radiographing a patient, but again, we shouldn't give the client the expectation that we can make a complete decision on, particularly on advanced treatment on that basis. And so would you say then arthroscopy would be the, the way to go forward as a point of call? Or would you say that arthroscopy plus or minus CT or CT followed by arthroscopy? So undoubtedly, the, the, the best way to evaluate an elbow if we think it's got developmental elbow disease is CT because it gives us a chance to um, locate and decide on the position and origin of any small fragments in, in, the, in the joint. So CT helps us with that. Interestingly, CT doesn't help us completely in terms of prognostication because one of the most important things we're going to use uh, for a prognostic tool is the actual state of the cartilage. And CT doesn't really help us with that. So arthroscopy does help us with that and we have the chance of removing some fragments. So I guess the bottom line would be what I'd most like to do is to have a CT and then decide on an arthroscopy but still have the option to do that if I felt that it was warranted either diagnostically or from the point of view of removing some fragments. I guess if I had a candidate who had been radiographed, who had signs of osteoarthritis that was early in its life, was likely to have developmental disease, and I could only afford a CT or an arthroscopy, then I'd go for the arthroscopy because I'm more likely to be able um, to generate a prognosis on that basis. And obviously, I, do, I mean, I don't want to say that you've uh, been in the RBC for a long period of time, but has your decision-making changed with the tools that have been made available to you over, over the period of time? Yes, I think that um, probably arthroscopy changes your view the most um, because just in the same way that we know that you see dogs with really quite mild changes on x-ray for their hip dysplasia and they have quite severe pain and dogs with severe changes and they're not painful at all um, you get the same sort of conundrum in uh, elbow dysplasia and the thing that really makes the difference, the thing that really gets you close to what's going on is the state of the cartilage. So we'll see dogs that have very similar radiographs or CTs. One dog will have pretty much pristine cartilage over its elbow joint. And that's a dog which we can think about quite safely increasing its exercise, um, maybe working with physiotherapy so the dog gets maximum benefit uh, from the joint. And then we'll see another dog where the cartilage is really severely eroded. Um, and that dog um, is going to need a lot more care because basically he's got no cartilage left. And we have very little uh, options in terms of treatment that will repair that. And are there, are there different things that you can do to repair that? Or are there things that are, are in the pipeline to, to help with that? 
So there's a couple of types of regenerative therapy that are in the pipeline at the moment. Um, Platelet-rich plasma uh, fragmentation is a nice technique in many ways. It can certainly be done in um, practice. Um, you need to, to buy a kit to uh, fractionate the plasma, uh, but you're using the dog's own plasma. I think the problem with that is that the results would tend to indicate that what that's largely having an effect on at the moment is on chronic inflammation. So I don't think as yet that's a truly regenerative therapy because most dogs come back, have been, been, been treated with that, they come back six or seven months uh, having got better and then got worse again. And then the other thing that people are talking about at the moment a great deal is stem cell therapy. And you can certainly do stem cell therapy on these joints. But once again, the evidence would suggest at the moment that that's not truly being regenerative. Most of those cells are going to boost the normal anti-inflammatory cell population in the joint. The problem with stem cell therapy, it's a very complicated area, but I'll try and summarize it in a few sentences. The problem is that we can't direct the stem cells as yet. It, it's difficult to target them. So we put stem cells into the joint and what we want to say to those cells is go to the areas which are denuded of cartilage and make new cartilage. And most of them don't do that. Um, and so that's, the, that, that's where stem cell therapy will get better and better and better is as and when we can do that, as and when we can direct the stem cells uh, to do what we want them to do. And as you can imagine, that's an incredibly hot area in medical research at the moment. And actually, um, my colleague and I, Richard, um, Richard Meeson and I, are actually involved in some of that medical research at the moment, uh, obviously with the hope that that will have a spin-out benefit for, for canine patients in the future. I suppose as you, you, you were saying we were talking about improving the joint or if there's problems in the joint to to uh, make that more comfortable and, and when we're assessing I suppose these therapies do we always think about the, you know, whether the, the whether the patient is in pain and is that our, our main go-to or range of movement as as well so how do we, do we look at the issues with elbow where the dog is interacting normally and running around normally is that part of the issue as it were i think that's their f that's their feedback you tend to get from owners so um owners perception is generally around the dog being able to move better the dog being more tolerant to exercise all of those sorts of things and i think that's that's where we should um we should be looking to that that should be our outcome measure really you know doing a cute piece of surgery or you know having a nice piece of video from an arthroscopy is all very well um but you really want the dog you really want to have improved the dog's quality of life you know in four weeks time you want the dog to be moving better so that maybe you know then the physiotherapist can do more with it and then we can get the dog moving uh, more and more and being more tolerant to exercise so those sorts of things are very much what you'd want Perhaps the way forward with that is to um, start to put more activity monitors onto dogs. They're really easy to put onto dogs these days. Um, you can monitor them centrally if you, if you like. And uh, maybe a campaign to have more 
um, activity monitors on more dogs as we try and manage their joint problem would be a good idea. That would be a way forward. It's certainly um, it's a very client-friendly thing to do. A lot of these things can be monitored in a number of places through an app on a mobile phone. So, you know, you can see what your dog scored this week for activity. It'd be, it'd be good to know as well, I suppose, before any interventions happened, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, what, absolutely. What, what the baseline and that, was. That sort of thing is very amenable. So, you know, we've had um, activity monitoring tools like force plates, for example, they're quite complicated to use and they're always based in a hospital who knows whether a dog walks the same in the hospital as he does when he's walking across the park you know the answer to that is no one the great thing about an activity monitor is you can you can monitor the patient's activity 24 7 um and you get to know what the patient's really doing I suppose I should uh, take another step back. I think I'm jumping a bit all over the shop. But if you have a patient just with elbow, so with with a lameness, and you think the elbow is is painful, at what point do you decide to do more than say rest and non steroidals? Is there a period of time that you think people should intervene more, or do you, as in, do you think we should be more? Um, aggressive with their therapies is in more arthroscopy or, or should we treat each one as an individual and give it a bit of time and see if that thing settle down to a manageable effect just with so i think standard the, therapies the problem with jumping to aggressive therapy is that we really don't know how well these therapies work we don't know how well an arthroscopy works for example my impression of an arthroscopy would be that it helps patients by in decreasing their level of discomfort so making them more comfortable and then that probably lets us do a lot of other things i think like all of these um, diseases which spin around arthritis or osteoarthritis you're looking at having a suite of management tools for a disease and then you vector in the management tools as you think you need them so i think most of these patients need to be considered for exercise control not restriction but control they need to be considered we need to make sure that they're at the right weight we need to think about making sure that physiotherapy is being thought about. And then we need to think about an analgesic drug if none of those things are working. And then if the patient is intractable to all our efforts there, then we start to think about whether we should evaluate um, the animal to see if there are fragments in the joint that could be removed at an arthroscopy. Or, or something like that, or maybe an, one of the other sort of surgical um, techniques that are out there um, for that. So I think it tends to be an individual solution, and it's very much it's very much in the hands of the practitioner. So if you look at schedules for managing this sort of thing and just managing osteoarthritic joints in general, they're all focused on this sort of network of management, and that's always done by the primary practitioner doesn't matter whether it's people or animals so it's a primary the primary practitioner needs to sit, think of themselves sitting in the middle of the spider's web of treatment and then vectoring in the treatments as they're appropriate and um and just to touch <coughs> sorry excuse me 
about um is there more interest in things like total elbow replacements or has that always been something that's been there and around um, or is it something the clients may be more more pushing for now so total elbow replacements interesting <coughs> we have the elbow replacement um or at least there are se uh, several iterations of elbow replacement it would be fair to say that overall we've done few of them fewer of them and they don't there's less uh, synergy between elbow replacement techniques in people and elbow replacements in dogs than there is between hip replacement techniques in people and hip replacement techniques in dogs so we do more hip replacements we have more success with them overall elbows are less successful replacement overall plus the salvage or the second best um, from an elbow replacement is an elbow arthrodesis, which is quite a serious surgery and it um, very much mechanically changes how the patient uses the leg. Whereas the alternative or the salvage from a hip replacement, if you have complications, is a femoral head and neck excision. And femoral head and neck excisions work really, really well. So in the hip, we've got a replacement and a second best, which is very, very close to it in terms of function. And in the elbow, we've got a replacement, which is more difficult to do, and a, uh, a salvage, which is a long way away from it. So that naturally makes us more cautious about elbow. So um, I don't think that um, there will be that many elbow replacements do, done and I certainly think that until someone comes up with maybe a better way of doing them I can't see it getting any anywhere near as sort of reliable as a hip replacement so I think probably um, we're better not in the long run really thinking about elbow replacement as being able to sort of save this situation for us. Very good. Um, thank you, Matthew. Do you think we've missed uh, anything in particular about their uh, diagnosis or, or, or treatment modalities? No. The only well, the only thing I'd say is that there's there's lots of other things that surround the elbow in terms of alternative um, diagnoses. Some of them are probably part of the elbow dysplasia problem, and uh, the humeral condylar fissure problem that spaniels get is probably a very similar sort uh, uh, of problem it's a developmental problem i think perhaps the the things to think there are other things to think about it's important to think about alternative diagnoses particularly in the young dogs and particularly when you're examining elbow you should always have in mind um, the fact that you may be pressurizing the bones as you do that and therefore it's very easy to make a misdiagnosis um, against um, juvenile panosteitis. So although elbow dysplasia should dominate our thinking in the young purebred dog and then as a knock-on for those dogs with osteoarthritis, we have to remember that, that it's not the only chronic condition at the elbow and, and, um, and we can occasionally get sort of uh, blindsided, almost making the diagnosis as the dog walks into the consulting room. Which, which is what we shouldn't do. Yeah. <laughs>
Well, many, many thanks for your time, uh, Matthew. This is our, our 99th uh, podcast, so uh, so we're honoured that we got you in here before the uh, before we hit the uh, hundred. So um, so thank you very very much, and we'll we'll wrap it up there. And what we'll do is we'll um, we'll try and attach a, uh, a, a a physical exam video, if you like, of, of how to assess elbows. Um, and so if you gave if you type in RVC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, we uh, we should put it there with a with a with a show notes as well. So if you could um leave us a five-star review that would be fantastic and uh, obviously we'll place some show notes as well on the on those sort of uh, on those pages so if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast please get in touch so you can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at don barfield until next time bye bye